0: Welcome to Return to Regalia, an Underland Chronicles reread podcast. I'm Una. I'm John. John, welcome back. Yes.
1: You've got my favorite character as well this week.
0: Yes, yeah, you are also a Repread fan. Yes.
1: I don't usually say this, but yes, Rip Red is hot.
0: Yes, we have another. We have another Rip Red is hot truther. And I don't find a lot of fictional characters hot, so that's saying something. <laughs> Maybe they just need to be a giant rat. Yeah. But yeah, today we're covering chapters 21 and 22. We are entering the rats' land now. We are nearing the end of this book. So for chapter 21, where we left off, two spinners had just staggered in to join the quest, and one of them died. Gregor looks at the dead spinner and says, so we're all here. And when asked what he means, he explains that all the creatures mentioned in the prophecy were together for a few seconds. Technically this isn't true because his dad isn't here yet, but everyone else was. Ripred repeats the line from the prophecy about eight being left when they count up the dead and pokes the dead spider with his tail. Gregor snaps at him to stop it and Ripred says they can't pretend to care about the dead spider seen as how they don't even know its name. The still alive orange spider says the dead one's name is Treflex and tells them, "I am she called Gox." Just a side note, I think we should all adopt this way of introducing ourselves because it's a very efficient way to tell people your pronouns when you meet them. I am he
1: called John.
0: Yeah, yeah. I want people to come up to me and be like, I am they called Jeremy. (laughs) Rip Red tells Gox that if she's hungry from the journey, none of them will think less of her if she wants to eat Treflex, and then she does so by pumping Treflex's corpse full of juice and sucking out her insides. Gregor turns himself and boots away so they don't have to watch. And he and Luxa promise each other that if any of them die on the quest, they won't let Gox drink them. Which I think is a nice little moment for them. Like, it's kind of horrific, but they are basically saying, I'm putting my trust in you to dispose of my dead body so it doesn't become spider food. Mm -hmm. Waste of resources, but (laughs) you do you, I guess.
1: (laughs) Like, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of like, if I were stranded on a desert island with a group of friends, and I died, I wouldn't say, hey, just toss my body in the sea. I'd say, yeah, eat me if you want.
0: Yeah, if you want. Yeah. Go wild.
1: I also, so I love this whole opening of this chapter for a few reasons, mainly because of Gregor and Rip Red. One, I like how Gregor immediately recognizes, oh, this is helping the prophecy. Like, he is immediately like, okay, yeah, we don't need to necessarily journey together, the spiders just need to proclaim that they are going to join us, which they did. And then that satisfies the two... Are they spinners? Is mm-hmm. that what, that's what they refer to? Yeah, that, that satisfies the two spinners in the prophecy. Mm-hmm. The other thing I like is how Ripley's entire attitude of this is just, like, so pragmatic. Mm-hmm. He's just like, okay, yep, yeah, well, um, let's kick this one aside. Don't, don't act like you care about me doing that. You don't know this spider. They tried to kill you a few minutes ago. And then also just like, hey, yeah, go ahead and eat your friend. And it's almost... I know, like, we haven't really established that Ripred doesn't care about the prophecies. I almost would have loved if he was, like, even just, like, thinking to himself, like, what if we kill this other spider, too? That'll mean one fewer one of us to die later on.
0: Mm. I feel like Ripred is probably thinking that Gox could be helpful, That's though. what
1: I was- that's the only thing I could really think of, like, in character for why he wouldn't mm-hmm. just kill Gox.
0: And also just to, well, I guess maybe the humans wouldn't care, but, like, Rip Red wouldn't want to go around killing creatures because that would make him less trustworthy Yeah, to w- he's
1: already kind of treading that line with them. Yeah. I was, I, when I was reading this, I was trying to think ahead, like, what does Gox do that is helpful? And it's like, yeah, he probably still would, like, not want to, like, jump the gun on that in case Gox would become helpful. Mm-hmm. But I was just thinking, like, one fewer human, maybe I I'm going to survive better now.
0: Hmm. After Gox is done making a Capri Sun out of Treflex, <laughs> Riffred asks her about the rats who attacked the spinners. We learn hundreds of Gnar's invaded the spider's land, and a lot of animals died before the rats retreated. Vicus came by later and sent Gox and Treflex after the quest group. So I guess Vicus did have some useful sway with the spinners after all. Easier to negotiate when they've been wiped out. Right. Gox asks Rip Red why the rats attacked them, and he admits he doesn't know what King Gorger is planning. He tells Gregor this doesn't bode well for his father, because up until now, Gregor's identity as the warrior has been kept a secret. Now that the rats know two overlanders were brought to the spinners, they might begin to catch on. The squad moves out of the cavern and into the tunnel, a drier, larger tunnel than the last one. The bats fly in circles overhead, but the others still have to walk on foot. Gregor muses aloud that if he were a bat, he would simply fly away and not look back. Luxa tells him Ares and Aurora would never do that because they're bonded to herself and Henry. Gregor asks how bonding works, and Luxa explains, when a bat and a human bond, they swear to fight to the death for each other. Gregor asks if everyone has a bat, thinking, it would be nice to know somebody was going to hang around and defend you in this place, which is excellent foreshadowing for what he and Ares will later do for each other. Luxa reveals that some people never find a bat to bond with, and her bonding to Aurora at such a young age was unconventional. They only did so because after her parents' death, Luxa always felt unsafe on the ground, so she spent a lot of time in the air on Aurora. Vicus had to convince the council to allow them to bond early, and after that, Luxa wasn't so afraid. I realized this time reading around that this is a fun kind of parallel or mirror to what happens to Gregor after he bonds with Aries because Gregor is afraid of heights mm-hmm. and he has a recurring nightmare about falling that stops after he and Aries become friends so luxa was afraid of being on the ground and spent all of her time in the air until bonding with aurora made her less afraid and gregor is afraid of being in the air and prefers to spend his time on the ground until bonding with aries makes him less afraid so that's just like a fun little mirror gregor asks if luxa is afraid now and she admits she is at times and reveals to gregor how she copes she says you see i tired of constant fear so i made a decision Every day when I wake, I tell myself that it will be my last. If you are not trying to hold on to time, you are not so afraid of losing it. And then if you make it to bedtime, you feel the joy of cheating death out of one more day. I've seen this line quoted in countless works of fan art and like aesthetic mood boards on Tumblr. And it's always treated with an attitude of like, isn't this so metal that she lives like this? (laughs) And, like, yes, it is a really iconic line and it says a lot about Luxa as a character, but I think some people miss the point of what she's saying here. She's not saying live every day like it's my last in the way that some people do when they mean, like, make every second count, be adventurous, etc. When she says live every day like it's my last, she literally means my life could be ripped away from me at any second so it's easier to maintain a loose grip on my life and never plan for the future because then i don't have to worry about losing it and some people i think seem to read the line like i tired of constant fear so i made a decision they see that as luxa conquering her fear and overcoming something but this is actually really maladaptive of her oh yeah
1: and gregor mentions this right after he's like this does not seem like a good way to live because it's not I have very severe anxiety, and I have kind of done a luxa at times with that sort of thing. Like, I imagine the worst possibility, because in my head it's like, okay, then if it doesn't happen that way, it's a, it's a, it's a better surprise. And if it does, then at least I was expecting it. But that means I'm always living... On like the like the the worst possibility in my mind I'm always on that edge and that's not an enjoyable life to live
0: mm-hmm. and I
1: think it's pretty clear Luxa is not exactly like you said well she's not well adjusted at this stage in her lifetime yeah because of everything that she's been through because of all the trauma and loss she's experienced but it's like there's a better way to be moving forward than how she currently is
0: right exactly And Gregor says this right away, that he doesn't know how to respond to that because it's just like the saddest thing he's ever heard of. But then he, of course, recognizes her thought process because he's been living in a very similar way since he lost his dad. The narration says, An awful thought struck him. Wasn't Luke's strategy just an extreme form of his own rule? True, he didn't think about dying every day, but he denied himself the luxury of thinking about the future with or without his dad. If he hadn't fallen through the grate in his laundry room and discovered his dad was still alive, if his dad had never come home, how long would he have gone on refusing to be happy his whole life?
1: It's so interesting how you mentioned how like this, that line has been quoted and like praised for its like aesthetics, but like without fully analyzing the meaning of it, because the book makes it pretty clear, like, like it draws the parallels between Gregor and Luxo, which is great. But then also is like, neither of them, this is not the optimal outlook for either of them.
0: <laughs> Yeah, and I think as a kid, I did not understand what was going on with these characters. In like the very first episode of the podcast, when we learn about Gregor's rule that he can't think about the future, I talked about how as a kid, I just never understood how damaging that is. Like, his psyche is very like in turmoil. And I never considered that as a kid, I kind of understood that it was like sad that his dad was gone and it's sad that Luke's parents are gone and Luke's lives in this really like dangerous place. But I didn't have the context for looking at it as an adult, looking at these kids who are just like so traumatized. So now rereading it, I'm like, this is so messed up. And they really are just like trying to live day by day, like just trying to get through the day. And I hadn't considered how like damaging that would be to someone's like, mental state.
1: This is a common, not true, but, like, common, like, character beat for Suzanne Collins, because Katniss has a very similar mindset in the Hunger Games, where, like, she's always, like, she has a bit more of planning ahead, but she's always just, like, trying to survive. She's always just taking each day, like, okay, today I'm going to go hunting, Prim can't enter anything into the Reaping, it's always going to be my name, when this and this and this happens... I'm going to have this plan laid out, but for now, I'm just going to focus on trying to preserve my family and like never really like reconciling the deeper issues or problems she's facing in the moment because she's just so focused on the now.
0: Yeah. and I think another common thread between hunger games and underlying chronicles is that, these kids are forced to think and live that way because of the societies that they're in. Like, Gregor is struggling with poverty, and his mom has to work all the time. Like, Luxa is obviously living in this very, like, war-like society. There's, oh, they're always on the brink of war. And then Katniss, of course, is living in a full-on dystopia. But they have to... They're, like, forced to live life this way, like, day by day, just surviving... Because of the worlds that they are growing up in. It's really interesting to draw those parallels between Hunger Games and *Underland Chronicles. Because obviously in Hunger Games it's way more obvious that they're living in a dystopia. And it's like, it's more about society and how that is like affecting these children. Because their society is literally like taking children and, and making them fight to the death. But this is... Basically the same premise in Underland Chronicles, like these kids are forced to go to war and even Gregor's poverty in the Overland before he comes to the Underland and becomes the warrior, like that is also a type of violence being inflicted on Gregor and his family that Gregor has to deal with every day. So that's that's really interesting. So unable to confront the possibility that he would have gone his whole life refusing to be happy... Gregor changes the subject back to bonding with a bat. Luxa describes the ceremony that takes place, in which humans and bats gather together, and the two bonds recite a vow to each other. And I will now read that iconic vow, because it's awesome. Aurora the Flyer, I bond to you. Our life and death are one, we two. In dark, in flame, in war, in strife. I save you as I save my life. Can we just talk about what a sick-ass wedding vow that would make? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it really is just like a cooler version of the classic wedding vows. Like, I take the blank to be my wedded spouse, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Like, even the structures of these vows are the exact same.
1: But this one vimes.
0: Yes! It rhymes and that's why it's better. But both of them involve the speaker addressing the person they're vowing themselves to and then stating their intentions to be bonded slash wedded and then listing various conditions under which they will stay bonded no matter what. So like the part from the bonding vow that's like in dark, in flame, in war and strife reads exactly like for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And then one interesting difference to note is that the human bat bonding vow ends with a line about saving each other's lives while the wedding vow ends with a reference to dying. So that's really interesting to me. And then like you said, the human bat vow rhymes so it's automatically better.
1: If they did adapt hu- the human vows to this, like what would they have the like ad- you could choose your own adjectives instead of like oh the flyer. You can do, like, I don't know. My fiancé's name is Aaron. Uh, Aaron the hot. Aaron the attractive. <laughs> Aaron the smart. Yeah, just, like, give a title. Yeah, you can, do, you can add in your own. Like, yes. how people make their own vows. That's, that's the... Uh, Aaron
0: the music lover.
1: Erica, the, <laughs> Aaron, Aaron the music lover.
0: Yeah. Yeah, what are you... Are you gonna do a human bat bonding ritual for your wedding, John?
1: Maybe not. Aaron hasn't read Don the Land Chronicles, <laughs> so it may be... And I don't know if anyone else... in. Who, I mean if you invite you you're gonna be invited, but I will be the it. one guest You would guessed. be you you get the reference. I'll be
0: the one guest at your wedding just having the time <laughs> of their lives. <laughs> Luxa says after the ceremony, there's a feast. So that's another parallel to a marriage. Like, I think this is definitely deliberate. Oh, yeah. that the bonding vow reads exactly like wedding vows. And there's this like ceremony where the bats and the humans come together and have a feast. We don't see any weddings in Mm. the underlying chronicles, I don't believe. No, we don't see any weddings. We see a birthday party, but that's it. Um, and we don't even see, like, an official bonding ceremony. It's just, like, Gregor and Ares...
1: Which is very unofficial. Be very
0: unofficial. And then, of course, at the very end, Luxa and Rip Red, which is yeah. also very it's out of the blue. Right. Gregor asks what happens if one of the bonds breaks the vow, and Luxa says they get banished to live alone in the Underland, which is basically a death sentence because no one lives long in the Underland alone. RipRed cuts in to tell them to shut up, and they do. But Gregor wishes they could talk more because Luxa is friendlier and less arrogant when she's not around Henry. The group walks for several more hours in silence. Oot sleeps on Gregor's back, and RipRed gnaws on a bone he saved from lunch. Gregor thinks about what RipRed said about the rats potentially killing Gregor's dad to keep him from being rescued. He also wonders about the last stanza of the prophecy that talks about the fourth person to die having a big responsibility to the eight survivors. However, the prophecy leaves out all the important details, so he can't make sense of it. The group finally stops in another cavern to eat again. They're running low on food, and Gregor almost objects to the roaches giving boots theirs, but Ripred tells him a crawler can live a month with no food if it has water, and Gox will survive a long time after having dined on Treflex. I looked it up, and Ripred is totally right about the cockroaches here. They can indeed live without food for a month, and they can live a week without water. For spiders, it depends on the species, but it seems they can generally go anywhere from a month to two months without food. I just like how Suzanne Collins is using the opportunity of like there are all of these giant animals in my book, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say a bunch of fun facts about them. Yeah. Like, I know a ton about these animals just because I read these books, and the fun facts stuck with me throughout my whole life. <laughs> Gregor notices Boots is quiet and clammy after having traveled through the cold, damp tunnels, and he worries she's getting sick, but tells himself his dad will be able to help when they find him. Everyone falls asleep immediately, and a while later, Gregor wakes to the sight of Henry standing over Rip Red, about to plunge his sword into the sleeping rat's back
1: of all the cliffhangers, which is nearly every chapter in this book, I think this one might be my favorite. Yes. Because I think that, like, we're going to get into it this, this upcoming chapter, but, like, this is kind of a major turning point, in my opinion. Like, there's a few, like, major parts where it's like, oh, this is where everything shifted. It's like, okay, Gregor's the chosen one, Rip Red enters, and then this, this point right here,
0: Yeah, this is the- I mean, it's not the actual scene where Henry reveals himself to be a traitor, but this is, like, the beginning of that. Yes. This is, like, the first hint that Henry is- Henry is keeping secrets from Luxa and the bats.
1: Yeah, like, when he's supposed to introduce, like, Gwiga thinks he's kind of cool. Then as the the chapters go on, it's like, okay, he's pretty haughty, he's pretty- full of himself. He's not exactly the nicest. But this is like, oh, he is not to be trusted.
0: Yeah, I feel like up until this point, he's just been like very arrogant. Yeah. Like Gregor from the very beginning thought that he was this arrogant show off. Mm -hmm. And he was also combining Luxa and Henry in that respect and assuming that they were like the same in terms of like their royal brats. But now that we've gotten to know Luxa a whole lot better, we can compare her to Henry and see that Henry really is this arrogant show-off, and Luxa is just like that when she's around Henry. Chapter 22 starts with Ripred waking up and seeing the look on Gregor's face. Before Gregor can even call out, Ripred flips onto his back and slashes Henry's arm with his claws. Henry's sword cuts across Ripred's chest. Gregor yells no and wakes up the rest of the group. Luxa and Aurora take off into the air immediately. Ripred stands up and Ares flies right at him. Gregor gets between them just in time and yells at them to stop. Everyone pauses, and Gregor figures none of them have ever seen someone try to come between a rat and a human before. He yells, Anybody who wants to kill anybody else has to go through me first. And because no one wants Gregor dead, they stop. I like that Gregor's understanding the political power of being a warrior here
1: he's using his status as a
0: warrior to preserve peace yeah yeah that's smart a very ironic yet
1: very in character move
0: Luxa demands that gregor get out of the way because ripred is going to kill them all and ripred says he was just trying to sleep and if he wanted to kill them he already would have Luxa calls him a liar but gregor backs him up and explains how henry was trying to stab ripred in his sleep Henry admits to this, and Gregor realizes Luxa didn't know about his plan, because she looks confused. Gregor pleads with Luxa to stop fighting, because they can't lose any more questers. The narration says, he'd made up the word questers on the spot, and it seemed to right. I use this word all the time, actually. It feels like it should be a word. It should be a word, and I use it a lot when I'm talking about Gregor or Percy Jackson. Yeah. Because it's just easier to say questers than saying, like, quest a quest group. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Aurora lands, but Luxa stays on her back. Ares hovers in the air, hesitating. Gregor wonders if Ares knew about Henry's plan, and if so, why they didn't attack Ripred together. Temp and Tick are standing over Boots protectively, yes. and Gox watches from the web she made to sleep in. Gox is like, I'm not part of this. No,
1: I'm, I'm just here to fulfill a contract. Yeah. I don't have any investment in these people.
0: Gregor tells Henry and Ripred to stand down, and Ripred does, saying, Warrior, you do not lack boldness. Gregor tells Henry that where he comes from, they don't think highly of someone who stabs a person in their sleep. Henry snaps back, he is not a person, he is a rat. If you cannot make the distinction, you may surely count yourself among the dead.
1: Doesn't Henry also call Gregor a traitor? Yeah. Which is a very audacious decree, Henry.
0: Yeah. Henry's moral code is so... I mean, he's, like, evil, but he's also, like, 15 or 16. And I just... I can't help but think that he's, like... I mean, he's also, like, royalty. So he just thinks that he's right all the time. And even though we learn later that Henry is a traitor and he's helping the rats... Henry here calling Gregor a traitor. Like I think Henry really does believe that. He's like, Gregor's betraying the humans by stopping me from killing Ripred here. Yeah. He,
1: he has a serious main character syndrome Yeah,
0: Henry does. <laughs> Gregor can't think of anything tough to reply to Henry with, <laughs> so he just tells Luke so they need to patch up the wounded. Gox spins Webb into bandages and Gregor tends to ripred. The rat thanks him, and Gregor tells him he only saved him from Henry because he (laughs) needs him. So we're coming back to that mutual need thing. Gregor overhears Luxa ask Henry why he didn't tell them about his plan. She warns him that he can't take ripbread alone, and they might need him, so he shouldn't mess with the rat again. Henry asks, is that an order, your highness? When she tells him again to stand down, he accuses her of talking like, quote, that old fool Vicus... The cousins realize everyone is listening now, so they stop talking.
1: <laughs> That's why you walk 20 feet away into the darkness before yes, having a conversation like, 20 like this. 20 yards. 20 yards, yeah, even more. So gotta
0: take it far away. Ripred starts gnawing on the bone he's had all this time, and it grates on Gregor's nerves. So he asks him to stop. Ripred then explains that rats' teeth grow continuously their entire lives, and they need to gnaw on stuff to keep them at a manageable length. He says. If I didn't gnaw frequently, my lower teeth would soon grow through the top of my skull and puncture my brain. Which is both a true fact about rats and foreshadowing about three books in advance, because in Marks of Secret, we see what happens to RipRed when he doesn't have anything to gnaw on. I mm. mean, it makes sense. They're called gnaws for a reason. Yeah. Come on, Gregor, put the pieces together. <laughs> RipRed decides the group should keep moving, and when Gregor goes to get boots, he finds that she has a fever. Luxa tries to find medicine in the pack Solivet left, but Ripred has to sniff the vials to confirm which is the right one. Gregor tries to put boots in her backpack, but it hurts her, so Gox ends up webbing her to Temp's back on top of a blanket. Gregor worries about her becoming one of the four dead questers mentioned in the prophecy, And thinks about how if she dies, it'll be his fault for bringing her on the quest. Which is super grim.
1: Super grim. And, like, this is where I think Suzanne Collins', like, world building and, like, tone setting really comes into play. Because, like, if this were handled, like, a more, like, traditional, like, not age-appropriate, but, like, aimed for younger readers series, like, this wouldn't be believable. Like, it wouldn't be like, oh, she's obviously not going to kill off a two-year-old. But, like, as we see in later books... Not just in this series, but in others. Suzanne Collins is not at all opposed to killing off children. Yep. And it's just, like, it's not treated as exploitative ever. It's just, like, how it is. Yeah. It, it makes the stakes so much more serious. And so, like, even reading this, like, yeah, like I'm like, okay, she's not actually going to kill off Boots. But she could.
0: Yeah, it's a possibility. She very
1: much could.
0: Like you said, it's just like a simple fact of this world, that like, this could happen. She set up a world in which this could totally happen.
1: And not even gruesomely, like, it's just like if she has a fever and they don't have adequate medicine, like, it could just be a slow and tragic death. It wouldn't have to necessarily be being killed by the vets.
0: Right. It's so terrible that this is just like part of Gregor's journey now, is that he has this like, sick toddler. And not just sick, but like, dangerously sick. And he just has to deal with that and, like, know that three more people are gonna die based on the prophecy. It's a lot. It's heavy. And Gregor just has to, like, keep moving. The group travels in silence until they get out of the tunnel and into a huge cavern divided by a deep canyon with a river running through it. A rope bridge spans the canyon, and Gregor thinks it must have been made sometime when the species weren't at war, because it's crafted from spider silk and stone that must have had to be cut by humans, and the bats' flying abilities would have been needed too. But it's in the rat's land, so all four of these species would have had to work together. Gregor shines his flashlight upward and spots 20 rats sitting <laughs> above their heads waiting for them. Ripbread yells at them to run, and the group takes off across the bridge except for Henry and Luxa, who are flying on their bats. Gregor remembers Boots isn't on his back and tries to go back to Temp for her, but Ripred anticipates this and uses his teeth to pick up Gregor by his backpack. They reach the other side of the bridge, and Ripred dumps Gregor on the ground before going to help Luxa and Henry hack at the silk ropes holding up the bridge. Gox and Temp, who's carrying Boots, are still making their way across. The only thing between them and the 20 rats is Tick. Gregor screams for Boots and tries to go back onto the bridge, but Rip Red stops him by knocking him to the ground with his tail. Gox makes it off the bridge and starts snapping the ropes with her fangs. As if the roaches is planned for this, Temp bolts for safety while Tick stays on the bridge to face down the rats alone. Tick reveals that she's had wings this whole time when she flies directly at the leader rat but alas, it crushes her head in its jaws. The bridge gives way just as temp reaches land, and the rats plunge into the river below. The narration says, as if this sight wasn't horrific enough, the water churned as enormous piranha-like fish surfaced and fed on the screaming rats. Which is actually kind of comical. Like, Suzanne Collins did not have to add the piranhas, but she did anyway. Yeah,
1: the, the fall would have been enough to end them.
0: Yeah, she just needed to add in that there's these giant flesh-eating fish in the river, also.
1: Who I don't I don't. They don't play a part in like really. Like they might make other appearances, I think, but like it's not like they're like also a key creature group like the rats and the spiders and the
0: no even like the
1: firebugs. Like it's just they they just show up from time to time to die to be like, oh yeah, the land sucks.
0: Yeah, it's just dangerous all the way down. But then the narration goes on to end the chapter with. In a minute, it was all over. The water ran smoothly. The rats had vanished, and Tick was gone forever. So sad. So tragic. Two down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is, like, the first big death in the series is Tick. And it really, like, sticks with you. Even though Tick is just in this first book and she barely has any lines, all of the fans of this series remember Tick as like this important figure.
1: Because Treflex shows up but we- it's the first time we're meeting Treflex so it doesn't really register and then the next- like not the next- the two chapters immediately after Tick is also gone.
0: Yup. Like we don't even learn Treflex's name until after- After the fact. (laughs) After they're dead. Yeah they say one line and then die. But like Tick is- Even if she doesn't have a lot of lines, she's been around, like, protecting boots and keeping her occupied. And we really, throughout the book, come to value the cockroaches the way that Gregor does and sees them as, like, they're the easiest ones to travel with. We like them because they take care of boots, even though they're not fighters. We're seeing how they are, I don't know, like, useful or strong in other respects. And then Tick being supremely brave at the end here, and just, like, taking one for the team to, like, hold back the rats. And um, just, like, the idea that Tick and Temp might have had this conversation before. Like, when, I'm imagining when Gox, like, webs boots to Temp's back, Temp and Tick are like, okay, so I'm gonna have the princess, and you have to, like, hold off the danger, and I'm gonna go running. It's just like so intense, and Tick is such a good character, even though we don't get very much of her. These were a couple of shorter chapters, but we're leading up to the final stretch here.
1: Chapter twenty one, not a lot happens plot wise, but we get so much, both like just just information, like about the bonding ritual, about. Yes, the like even more like we this has happened in the previous chapters as well when they were walking the caves but like really emphasizing how Luxa and Henry are like not just different but like now really starting to have a rift between them and splitting apart. Yeah, we get information about uh the NAS and but specifically we get the sacrifice of. Tick. And yeah, just a, like, as we've covered, a lot of really heavy things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. These chapters are very grim. And it's going to get worse in the coming chapters.
1: And coming books.
0: And coming books. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. <laughs> These ones, we get a lot of world building. And of course, the bonding ritual is very important, not only to set up what's going to happen with Ares and Gregor, but just to learn about Luxa and Aurora and how they work together. I can't wait to get to the end of this book because it's amazing. And then, of course, I'm looking ahead and thinking about book two. So that was chapters 21 and 22. Any last thoughts?
1: I love the (laughs) bed. He he really he's so much fun. Every every line he has is just so enjoy. Even like yeah, like the fact that he like has to pick up Gregor and then knocks him down just because like I I know you love your sister, but you have to stay here. We can't risk you.
0: Right, and he just like he knocks Gregor to the ground repeatedly when Gregor tries to get back on the bridge, and he like knocks the wind out of him, and Gregor is like crawling. Like it's so intense. A couple things before we sign off today. First of all, as always, you can follow us on Instagram and Tumblr at Return to Regalia. And if you look on our Tumblr, you'll see I have made a post about the Gregor the Overlander 20th anniversary special we're going to be doing.
1: Has it been 20 years? When did this, when did the first book come out? The
0: first book came out September 1st, 2003.
1: That's, I always thought it was like later in the 2000s. That's ridiculous. No, it's
0: very, yeah, it's early, but it's going to be the 20th anniversary and- I thought something fun to do for that would be to have fans of the podcast email us with, like, memories they have of reading the books as kids or as adults... Email us about your favorite character, about your favorite scene in the books, or even just like your favorite book and why. And I think keep the emails around like 700 words and sign the email with whatever name you want us to read on the podcast. And we're going to try and put out an episode on September 1st reading people's emails Just, like, talking about how they love the series, and I have some of my own treasured memories to share, and I just think it would be a nice thing to do for the 20th anniversary. So, in summary, send your favorite things about the Underland Chronicles to to returntoregalia at gmail.com before September 1st, and we'll read your email on our 20th anniversary special episode. John, thank you so much for joining me this episode. Yeah,
1: thanks for having me, as always. Yeah, if Rip Red was your sexual awakening, now you know (laughs) what the outlet should be.
0: (laughs) Oh my god, how many emails are we going to get about Rip Red? Every single one. Every single submission. I'll make you and Nate read all of them. That would be excellent. As always, thank you for listening, and until next week, fly you high.
1: Mm